Welcome to the Battleground Wisconsin. My name is Matt Bruskin. I'm the Deputy Director here at Citizen Action, and welcome to another week from Wisconsin. We have our full panel, which means Jorna Taylor is sitting across from me. Jorna is a nonprofit consultant here in Wisconsin. Jorna, welcome. Good morning, good afternoon to everyone in podcast. In God. Oh, Radio Land. In Radio we Land. Are on a radio show now. I make the mistake almost every week. Jorna, we're glad to have you. Robert Craig is also with us. Robert is the executive director here at Citizen Action. Welcome, Robert. Good day, everyone. So, well, we actually have a recording studio for once. We have uh, we've moved out of our office into, uh, we're jokingly calling it a recording studio. We may be picking up the sounds of construction <laughs> occurring next door, but we will push forward. We really appreciate everyone joining us. Uh, if you want to know who we are, we're Citizen Action of Wisconsin, and you can find us at citizenactionwi.org. Number of topics we have to talk about. We are going to lead off by talking about the news around Foxconn. Uh, we record Thursday morning, and so the news is really 24 hours, fairly fresh, although there has been quite a bit of discussion that this may be happening. Um, we'll, of course, also talk about healthcare, get the latest update. We're also going to meet a member of our new Healthcare for All Organizing Cooperative to uh, enlighten us as to why she thinks it is so critical for you to consider joining the organizing co-op. And we'll also be joined by Matt Rothschild from the Wisconsin Democracy Campaign to talk a bit about vouchers and the corrupting influence of voucher money in our uh, policymaking here in the state of Wisconsin. But folks, let's jump into Foxconn. Uh, by the time y'all are listening, either through our podcast on Friday or on the radio show on Sunday, there have been a lot of news around Foxconn, but the details are, it's, uh, and, and the numbers are a little weird, uh, it's because we're not sure, but it sounds like Foxconn, which uh, is a company that produces products for iPhones, and in particular is talking about coming to Wisconsin to invest about $10 billion, so they say, in building a display panel plant here in Wisconsin that would employ anywhere from three to 13,000 workers. Yes, that's quite a spread. Um, but looks like it's going to require $3 billion in subsidies from state taxpayers. Jorna, you're looking at me with disgust. <laughs> Jorna, what, let's start with you. What are your thoughts? I mean, I'll offer my insight later, but just curious, uh, well, lead us off. I, I, people who know me well know that I'm really hard on my eye devices. So <laughs> if I could just get a direct line into new iPhone screens and things from the factory, that'd be fantastic. Um, but that's not the point here. I think it is a really interesting um, concept that taxpayers in Wisconsin would be on the hook for up to 30% of these salaries. Now we're talking about these are supposedly going to be salaries in the 50,000 plus range for these workers, you know, that remains to be seen in the on final a, deal, on right? Average, yes. um, on average, and you know, are those going to be a few high paid CEOs that bring that average up and then everybody <laughs> else is making, you know, minimum wage? <clears throat> Thank you for pointing that out. Check <laughs> but, uh, one. Ch check one. And, you know, Two, I just think it's that Walker's uh, been 
his his WEDEC investments have been less than fruitful and taxpayer dollars have been less than wisely spent in the past. So while I think it's great that we may get a new company, I, I reserve my criticism. I, you know, suspend my disbelief for a moment, if you will, that this may be just this bang up deal for Wisconsin. Well, Jordan, you point out, right. Who knows? WEDEC has no credibility with jobs, job speculation, actual uh reporting of numbers so that is a huge problem here robert your thoughts oh there's just so much to say about <laughs> this uh, at, at so many levels in fact we should talk to we're gonna have matt rothschild on later but we can ask him about uh, the value of a right-leaning company coming into the state so it can further distort use its money to distort our politics even further but aside from that in all the breathless press coverage, there's no thought to, is this really a good idea to have states bidding against each other in order to like get rid of all of the funding and tax base they have for education, uh, for, for roads and other transportation and healthcare and everything else. So everyone just accepts that this is all good just to throw bribes. I mean, not everyone, but a lot of people. I mean, Jen Schilling did say it was a gigantic corporate, $3 million corporate welfare package, which is right on uh, the Senate uh, Democratic leader in the state Senate. But even more than that, I know that Jordan was mentioning WEDEC, right? Well, according to the press reports, and by the way, all the information, where's the information coming from? It's coming, it's very scarce. It's coming from Foxconn, it's coming from Trump, and it's coming from Walker and Ryan, okay? So consider the sources. But apparently, Trump personally negotiated this. So the WEDEC folks will try to claim credit. They apparently nothing to do with it. I've not seen a counter from WEDEC on this. Uh, WEDEC, of course, has an abysmal track record. And remember, the last audit says that they still don't have enough reporting to verify whether any jobs were actually created or not. And so they're going to say, oh, 13,000 jobs, here's $3 billion. And they're going to verify that the jobs were created in order to pay out the tax credits. And then not to mention, no standards on how good the jobs are. Part of what's going on here is insourcing back in the US because our wages have been driven down so much. Uh, but remember, the, consider the source with Trump, right? Because uh, Trump, this is part of a, a, a promise Foxconn made to put jobs in the US after Trump was elected. Uh, and now Trump brought them home, supposedly. Remember all the carrier jobs Trump supposedly saved? And then he didn't. And remember, Foxconn has promised states like Pennsylvania they're creating jobs and then created no jobs. So, so, Robert, you bring up two really broadly important things. One being, this is an incredibly political arrangement, right? Trump all over it. There's been discussions. And then, Robert, you talked about this competition between the states. It's been very public that multiple states are were competing for this, right? Many of them important states to Donald Trump's uh, political future. But... This is highly political, and the scale of the dollars that we're investing with very little of any kind of clarity around accountability for the job creation, these actual numbers, which, by the way, when you see 3,000 to 13,000, and then, oh, 22 whatever thousand are going to magically appear because of the stimulating effect of Foxconn. Are there clear clawbacks, clear monitoring, anything like that? Any negotiation about where the plant is? You know, so everyone seems to be fine putting it in farm fields on the Illinois border. Mightn't it look good if you were actually doing planning in Milwaukee or in Racine or a place that has been deindustrialized that needs a lot of jobs? Wait, but Robert, I, as far as I know, um, the speaker is 
actually facing an opponent for re-election, so wouldn't it be great if it just landed like next to his house or something and he could help claim those jobs? How about the Janesville GM plant, for God's sake? There's a nice big area that right right in, in, in his so hometown. I, I do, I, I want to say personally, like I'm not opposed to the idea right. that government would invest resources, even significant resources, to create jobs, a lot of jobs, good jobs. It appears, again, information not very good, these could be decent jobs. It sounds like we're not getting the million Foxconn jobs that are in China that everyone has heard about, horrible conditions, right? Very low wages. We're getting sort of this more skilled, uh, higher-end manufacturing. If they all come, right, let's remember, these are promises. But there is no, there's no real standards for any of this. There's no real commitments, none of these clawbacks. Uh, the other thing is the the actual local buy-in, the, the lack of communities, the Racine community has not even been talked to. And who, like, why is it brilliant to put all this money and dump it into one employer who's going to disproportionately now have, like, you know, uh, sway in terms of that community's economic future? And we, there's just no guarantees to any of this. It's In many ways, it's insane. And a company that has a, a, future, uh, a real history of automating so they'll, they'll like another manufacturing, reducing the number of jobs each and every year. Yeah. Uh, for example, I mean, this is a this is a really bad company, and in a way, it should scare the heck out of us that now finds it affordable to bring its low low road model to the United States. I mean, this is a sweatshop company. I, I don't disagree. Again, though, I want to make my plea for my iPhone screens to just be delivered directly to my door. Jordan, we'll mainline <laughs> oh, that. Sorry. It'll come via Amazon but, but straight Matt, to I, your house. That would be perfect. Um, but I do agree that this is going to be something that we need to be very careful about. I, I agree that it's not bad to have jobs and investment, obviously, because Wisconsin is open for business. But um, at the same time, we really have to watch that they aren't just garbage, you know, low-wage jobs, and they're pulling some sort of bait-and-switch for a really metric large ton of money. We expect that we'll be talking more about Foxconn, but this is going to open up a much broader discussion about the economy. It's still going to occur within the context of a budget where they can't even figure out how to build roads uh, in the state. But I do want to, before we go to break, point out one thing here, folks. The Republicans in this deal are admitting there's a massive role for government and job creation. They're actually moving away from a lot of their fundamental arguments uh, here. It's uh, interesting, but of course, we're gonna, we're gonna talk more about their approach and where we, uh, going forward in terms of how we actually would need standards to make something like this actually work. But we'll talk more about this on future podcasts. When we get back from the break, we're going to talk more about the healthcare situation in the Senate and also long term what we can do to change the current healthcare situation. With that, we got to get out of here. Welcome back to the Battleground Wisconsin. We are Citizen Action. You can find us at citizenactionwi.org. So we are going to talk in depth a bit, a little bit, dive into some of the specifics about what's been going on with the Senate health care bill. And then after that, we're going to have a conversation about our new organizing cooperative, Healthcare for All. So Robert, it is, it's, it's almost uh, jarring to try to keep up with the minutia of the changes 
this is the most insane <laughs> legislative legislative making process that I have seen. But in summary, we are at the point as of Thursday where the first couple efforts, both at repealing, uh, replacing, have gone down. But we're now l l talking about a skinny, skinny repeal. What does that even mean? So <laughs> let our listeners know a little bit about what a skinny repeal is and, why, and what let's talk about its prospects. Yeah, I guess skinny is almost a good word in our culture now. Maybe you should say baby repeal or something like that. Because uh, They are so committed to falling through on all of the lies they've been telling for seven years about the Affordable Care Act, attacking things they supported until President Obama was for them, then they were against them, uh, that they can't... And, and they want the money for the huge tax cuts, that they can't stop, they can't get a consensus... Uh, they somehow think they're getting closer somehow. They're looking for the sweet spot between moderates and, uh, and conservatives. Uh, but this just shows that they, they want to keep it alive just politically. They want to prove to their base that they try. They want to prove to Trump, who's having tantrums on Twitter and probably other places as well, uh, that they're moving forward. And the idea of the skinny repeal is they just repeal a couple provisions like the individual mandate. Um, and the employer mandate, which, by the way, will cause a lot of people to lose insurance and make it more expensive for people who need it. Uh, and then that would mean the Senate has a health care bill and they can go to conference committee with the House and keep, the, uh, keep this alive further and have another plan between the House and Senate that they then try to ram through the House and Senate. So this just extends the whole fight and shows that their commitment to the fight. Um, it oh, wait, 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 wait. Actually, now I remember I did... That process was on Schoolhouse Rock. I remember it was exactly. <laughs> so the comes brilliant, that's exactly how they the laid it brilliant out. Brilliant legislative strategist, thank you, Mitch McConnell, will eventually figure <laughs> out how to get to enough votes. I mean, there's a danger here. That means it's a real uh, uh, challenge uh, for everyone working against this because it means almost permanent resistance to the permanent repeal attempts. Uh, and they really want to go uh, want to go after Medicaid, and that's becoming the hardest thing for them to go after. Uh, so it just means that just like they had a perpetual war against the Affordable Care Act uh, before uh, Trump's election, there's going to be a perpetual legislative effort, it appeals, to try to undermine it in every which way possible and figure that we get our guard down and they finally break down their swing votes enough that they finally, one midnight, pass it in both places and then, and then irreparably harm the American health care system. First of all, Robert, you've been using alternative facts. Because Again. actually, the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, has been around for 17 years, as yes. the president said. Been failing for 17, week, so 17 years. 17 years. I missed that one, Jordan. So it was brought in by George Bush. Right. <laughs> so, so there's that. <clears throat> um, and, you know, they have to have some sort of victory, right? So if it's a skinny victory, I mean, they've been railing on this thing for seven or 17, whichever, you know, number you want to pick for, uh, for a long time with how many epic failures. And so they are just so grasping at straws. What was fascinating to me is the sort of doublespeak and the cowardice, frankly, that a lot of these Senate Republicans are showing. And you know what? I got to be honest. I think that John McCain is an American hero, right? And he's a great patriot. But you can also be a political coward at the same time. Thank you for saying and that. And a guy who just came back from receiving top-notch medical care and will continue to receive top-notch medical care for his brain tumor and any other health issues voted to repeal 
healthcare for you know millions of Americans, and that sort of thing that is going on is ridiculous. So you could have a headline, right? That American war hero flies back uh, with brain tumor uh, to vote to take 23 million uh, healthcare away from 23 million people. That's a really that long he headline, yes. but well, it is. I agree. Look at it. Here's <laughs> no, but it, no one even saw the irony of right. what John McCain's illnesses, what kind of treatment he's getting, which he completely deserves. Absolutely. Uh, but then, you know, the, 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 then what he, came, what he came out of the hospital bed to come back and do. So it's a beautiful sort of transition to what I sort of view this skinny repeal as. Robert, you have talked a lot about sabotage. That's mm-hmm. what it is. It's yeah, straight up of the- sabotage of the individual markets. I was trying to, I was, as I was listening to sort of the details, and I won't go into them exactly sort of what the skinny bill will do to sabotage the markets, how it will undermine insurance, and essentially 16 million people, according to CBO, will lose it. It's really kind of like, you know, if you're on a ladder and you're up doing some work and somebody just comes and sort of just rips the ladder out from underneath you, right? There's nothing you can do about it. You're kind of up on the ladder and you're just, you're going to come down if you're one of these people, right? And you're going to lose your health insurance. And it's a product of them not being able, again, we've talked about this, propose something that's coherent to the American people, that's an actual alternative. They've failed. And so, really, they're left with sabotage, and that's what skinny it's repeal is. Can't. It's sabotage. They can't because they don't actually believe this is government's role, but they don't have the courage to say that because their polling shows that they, their opinion, the public's opinion, differs on this. So they did a bait and switch where they ran as progressives in the last election. Then they thought they could get away with taking people's health care away to fund huge tax cuts for the wealthiest and tell people it was better health care, and it didn't work because citizens stood up. This is about democracy. And they're still trying to bait and switch. And they figure they're now playing four corners. They're going to elongate the process. And eventually, the public will get tired of this or distracted by the president's Russia scandals. And then they can do what they're going to do. So they never had any intention of having a real health care plan or lowering people's costs or guaranteeing access to health care. That's the problem, though a few of them are the waffly ones. Are, there's a, there's a gr- two groups against it, the waffly ones that actually want to do more health care than they do, but not as much as we need, and the group that's so right that they think this is too much. And that's been the coalition against in the House and Senate. Well, Robert, I'm really happy to hear you talk about the fact that really this is, this is people rising up. It's people have spoken up against what they've been seeing. We have talked about the fact that the resistance to this health care plan has been fundamental to surprising the Republicans in the level of resistance. And so with that, we want to welcome a guest that we're going to have on our show. And uh, uh, our guest is a member of our new Healthcare for All organizing cooperative, which we think is going to be fundamental towards laying the groundwork to how we actually move towards making sure everybody has access to quality, affordable healthcare. So our member who has joined us is Joan Palm Raining Hansen. Joan, thanks for joining us. Hello, it's good to be here. So Joan, I'm really glad you took the time. Let me clarify, Joan is a retired certified occupational nurse specialist um, and lives in Hubertus, but has joined our organizing cooperative. So Joan, tell our listeners first a little bit about why you decided to join the Healthcare for All organizing cooperative. Well, for all of you out there who've heard the term occupational health, I'm not a therapist. I'm actually a person who took care of the workers. I work for working people. 
I consider myself a person as a, a working in the trenches. I took care of people on a daily basis to make sure that they could stay at work, which included knowing a lot of laws regarding workers' comp, emergency care, CPR, you name it. Uh, I also worked with the impaired worker in healthcare who uh, maybe had addictions. Uh, so it's, it's a wide variety of uh, healthcare concerns in working people. Uh, what I did see over the years, though, was a discrepancy and who could get what care based on their income and their insurance. And as an occupational health nurse, I was downsized three times with right sizing, et cetera. In fact, one of the most recent one was when I was working at Community Memorial Hospital Menominee Falls. I was there for 10 years, and when Freighter took over community, they laid off 80 nurses over the age of 50, including myself and two coworkers who had been in their jobs 20 and 25 years. Highest paid, first to go. Most experience, first to go. So in doing another job at age 58, I had to find another job. But what I did when I got laid off, I'm a pay it forward person. I'm always trying to look for the positive and every negative. So I volunteered uh, at the free clinic at Community Memorial. And what I noticed is that there were other professionals like myself, professionals with two two degrees and who had moved home to Milwaukee from Chicago or New York and were making $9 an hour in a deli at a grocery store because they had no jobs because they went to India. And they were coming to us for back pain, mental health, et cetera, because they didn't want their employer to know that they'd gotten hurt on the job because they were afraid they'd lose their $9 an hour job. So I always felt that single payer was the way to go. Why work, work was connected to insurance happened many years ago, but it needs to separate itself out now. We're going to have to quick take a break. When we get back, I want you to tell us how your experience in not only your history, but then working in this free clinic helped lead you to joining the co-op. We'll be right back. Okay, thank you. Welcome back. To the Battleground Wisconsin. We are Citizen Action Wisconsin, and you can find us at citizenactionwi.org. Before we had to go uh, so rudely because of commercials, sorry, Joan, Joan was in the process of telling us uh, why her background in healthcare, which led to her joining our uh, Healthcare for All organizing cooperative. So, so, Joan, before we left, you had told us about your experience working in a free clinic after being downsized and seeing the disparity between uh, different folks in their income and the kind of access to healthcare they had. Yes, and, and access, I think, should be available for all. And even if you're a working person and it's costing you a mortgage for the tamoxifen after breast cancer, which is $800 a month, nurses used to come crying to me saying, do I pay my mortgage or do I pay for my health? I still have kids to raise. It, there were just so many disconnects. And so when I met Katie... Just last week, I'm thinking, wow, okay, here we go. Um, this is for all of you registered nurses out there, you LPNs or the lowly paid nurses and the CNAs. I worked as a CNA uh, many years while I was going through nursing school. 
And I sure need you as a, as a retired person, so don't quit. <laughs> and do, if you want to get involved, and I realize that you cannot always be on Facebook and say things, but if you would like to do things behind the scene, we have, uh, in the next 19 days, we have a Drive for the Healthcare for All organizing co-op, and it will put you in the driver's seat to actually make some change in our state. And I think this is an original idea for Healthcare for All in Wisconsin. We're not that big of a state. We don't have huge numbers of people coming to our state, so I don't think the numbers will be so high that we cannot do it. So, Joan, you mentioned Katie. Katie is yes. the lead organizer for mm -hmm. the Healthcare for All co-op. And if you're, if you're interested in joining the co-op, you can reach Katie or even just get more information at uh, katie.dunn, that's D-U-N-N, at Citizen Action W-I. Uh, just reach out to her. She will give you a call, give you all kinds of information. Uh, now, you, you mentioned your desire for single payer. Mm -hmm. And I think the great thing about this co-op is it's not about any this particular fight. It's about a long-term vision of how do mm -hmm. we move towards single payer? How do we move towards making sure everybody has access to care? Talk more about that and why you decided to become a co-op member. Well, I've actually traveled to other countries. This is—I've been to France and Italy when my daughter had a, a semester, and and also in Spain. And what I noticed is that we could go to a clinic and get medication for fifteen dollars, and we didn't have to pay the eighty-dollar or now one hundred and twenty-five dollar uh, uh, copay for seeing the physician. And they also had homeopathic remedies. I think there's many other remedies available than just our regular um, health care. But uh, single payer. If uh, from cradle to grave, it frees people up to actually become who they really want to be. Now, for those of you who are healthcare providers out there, you all know about Maslow's hierarchy of needs, but basically it's having three hots and a cot. It's having your food, it's having your, a place to stay, and it's having a job or some income. If you don't have those things, then you can't go on to be a totally productive citizen. So by having health care, you will be available as a good worker in our state. Or free. It's really free. Free, right? yeah. So free, like... yeah. And not to have to worry about that. There's so much angst with people with changing jobs because of health care. And some employers now, a lot of employers have gone to deductibles of six to $10,000. And so if you wanted to save for retirement, that's not happening. Uh, so there's so many, you know, so many things. So please uh, think about joining the co-op and getting involved. Uh, and if you can't say something and you want me to say something or do something, something for you, please contact Katie and then I can do that for you. Well, Joan, really, really glad you took the time to join us today and that you've taken the time and money to join the co-op and actually uh, put your experience to use in helping quite frankly, lead the fight for uh, affordable health care for all. So really appreciate it. And that you took the time to join us on the show today. Oh, and I know a few more leaders that I'm going to pull in here. So all of you who know me, listen up. <laughs> well, that, what's powerful is we feel like patients and medical providers together, if they stood together and organized together, uh, couldn't be stopped, particularly where the American public is on health care as a fundamental human right. And so... You have more power as an individual. You should definitely call Ron Johnson, call Paul, Paul Ryan. But that's one individual coming together. We right. can do more than that. That's and great. that's what democracy is about. And this that's is right. about realizing the full potential and power of democracy. 
And this is one place you can do it. I think people don't know where to go or where to start, and this can make it easy. Yeah, you know, one, one real example of, you mentioned calling Ron Johnson. A lot of people are like, I'm tired of calling Ron Johnson. Well, <laughs> the organizing co-op has members who are actually, uh, have made calls to targeted voters who, who are ineligible for the Affordable Care Act or for Medicaid and are calling them and encouraging them to talk and call Senator Ron Johnson. And we've had amazing pickup with when we actually have contact with people we've had over 50 percent of people making those phone calls um, and those are really important people who are directly impacted making the calls so it's a, just one little thing that organizing the healthcare for all organizing co-op members are doing right now in this fight uh, to, to 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 win hopefully win the fight but uh, one other thing they're also educating people about this new Badger Care for All bill, like what we ought to be doing, right? Not just what we're stopping, but sort of where we where the next step is. So uh, very important work and, if you join the co-op. And we'd have a broader view of influence, right? We're not saying that Ron Johnson will ever agree with us. Ron Johnson said having a pre-existing condition and paying more is, like, it is, is as right as someone who's a reckless driver paying more for insurance. So that's a fundamental misunderstanding of what illness is, right? So we're not going to agree with him, but I don't think if it wasn't for average citizens all over the state calling him and, and trying to hold town hall meetings and going to his office, that it would have taken McConnell a face-to-face -face just as the vote was ticking down to get Ron Johnson to actually vote to proceed this week. So uh, believe you me, it influences all politicians, uh, civic engagement, whether they agree with us or not. Life is a pre-existing condition. Yeah. And I want you to think of this healthcare for all organizing co-op as a warm blanket that we're gonna wrap around your shoulders and it's gonna make it easy for you. People will be flocking to Wisconsin if we get this go, but we'll keep it kind of secret like yeah. we usually do in this state. <laughs> Well, with that, thanks again, Joan, for joining us today, and we look forward You're to welcome. your work down the future. Mm -hmm. Thank you. So obviously, uh, great for Joan to join us. Uh, before we transition, I do want to point out that there is going to be a Medicare for All rally and uh, birthday party this weekend. For folks who don't know, it's the 52nd birthday of Medicaid and Medicare. And obviously, with all the attacks on uh, our current Affordable Care Act, there's going to be an event, a rally, at 11 a.m. It's at the Wisconsin Federation of Nurses and Health Professionals. That's on Saturday, right? Which is on Saturday, July 29th. Again, 11 a.m. Saturday, Wisconsin Federation of Nurses and Health Professionals, which is at 96th and Greenfield. Uh, there's a parking lot there, uh, so please join us. Hope you can... Uh, can be there to help be a part of resisting and moving forward. But Jorna, need to get your thoughts. I have them. Yes, you have them. On Trump's, Trump and Twitter again. I got a lot of thoughts about Trump. Trump seems to be, again, governing via Twitter. But uh, Trump had a, a tweet this week about essentially saying that all transgender folks were going to be banned from the military. Yep. So, uh, you know, more governing and policy decisions by Twitter. It makes me feel a lot of confidence in our government and our highest leadership. So, uh, snarkiness aside, yeah, President Trump overturned an Obama um, ruling that actually allowed transgender to transgender service men and women to serve openly in the military and now said, mm, nope, we're not going to let you serve at all. So... 
everybody knows if you've been a longtime listener that I'm really involved in Milwaukee Pride, which throws Pride Fest and all of that. And as I was writing our statement to put out to the press yesterday, the first the first version was very vile, <laughs> I have to admit, because this is such a disappointing and regressive move back on the march toward equal rights and social justice. And, you know, for everyone who thinks that, you know, we won when we got same-sex marriage, we keep seeing all of these attacks on transgender individuals and on lesbian, gay, bisexual children and all sorts of horrible things. So this ban, nobody really knows exactly how this is going to be implemented. The Department of Defense was not exactly consulted fully in doing this. And so it's kind of a out of left field from a guy who claimed on the campaign trail that he was going to be a friend to the LGBTQ community. Yeah, that's what I don't get, right? Like this is a guy who, this was one of the areas where he actually sort of sort of broke with the more modern Republican president who had been running and actually seemed to try to embrace and suggest that they'd be better well, with him under, than oh, Hillary. Exactly. And, and just to quickly follow up on that, on the same day, his Department of Justice also filed a lawsuit stating that the um, provisions in the civil rights laws don't actually cover LGBTQ employees from being fired. I'm sorry, wait. The Department of Justice is now proactively going after individuals in our society, this is mind-blowing. It's pure politics, and his politics is always to appeal to his base, not to try to, as most presidents of both parties have done, find something broader that includes more people. And so this, I don't think this is about him being bigoted. This is about him willing to use bigotry to try to rip off his base in order to advance his poll numbers and his theory of politics, which makes it even more gross in many ways that he's willing to play with people's rights. I bet there's no research, there's no problem here. Are there any discussion of this being a problem in the military? or It's been a non-issue, which tells you something, right? But then he figured out it became an issue once he saw a political advantage. Yeah, it's you, you use the term gross. So, well, with that, we got to get out of here. On the back end, we are going to have Matt Rothschild for Wisconsin Democracy Campaign. Welcome back to the Battleground Wisconsin. We are Citizen Action. You can find us at citizenactionwi.org. So for our last segment here, we are going to talk about vouchers. And uh, in particular, we're going to talk about the amount of money that has been dumped into Wisconsin this uh, past decade or last six, seven years uh, from voucher special interests to influence our elections. And uh, we're joined by Matthew Rothschild, who's the executive director of the Wisconsin Democracy Campaign. They have uh, released some major research this week on those numbers, and he's joined us to tell us more about it and its implication for policy here in Wisconsin. Matt, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me back on. So, Matt, tell us, uh, tell our listeners a little bit about the research, what you found, and then let's have a discussion after that about its implications for the policy in our legislature uh, right now, immediately. Well, the school vulture folks have just thrown a ton of money uh, into the pockets of Republican legislators and into Scott Walker's wallet uh, over the last uh, seven years. So it's not a surprise that school vultures are being expanded. I mean, the numbers are astronomical. I mean, we're looking at more than $8 million that uh, school vulture interests have spent either directly in campaign contributions to candidates or in that so-called 
issue advocacy outside smear ads that happen so much and all that mud that's splattering our screens at election time. Well, a lot of it, millions of it, was coming from these uh, school voucher people. And one of the biggest supporters, uh, advocates of school vouchers is now the Secretary of Education under Donald Trump, Betsy DeVos. And her outfit that she founded and funds, the American Federation for Children, spent more than $6 million over the last seven years uh, on uh, electing Republican candidates here in Wisconsin. And the shocking thing to me uh, when I just came on to the Wisconsin Democracy Campaign is realizing that Scott Jensen, the former disgraced Speaker of the Assembly who was caught up and convicted in the caucus scandal of 2001, is alive and well and kicking in the Capitol as powerful, if not more powerful than ever, because he's one of the leaders of American Federation for Children in Wisconsin. And he's the guy who throws the money around. He's the guy six weeks before the election who places these horrible uh, slanderous issue ads against candidates that are very successful. Hey, Matt, this is uh, Robert. Um, what is your, your sense of how this distorts the system? I mean, defenders of this system would say probably that these are that these are just folks exercising their First Amendment rights because money is speech, and they're just, they they believe in better education. They're trying to help the children, and they think that the private sector is more efficient, and so they're just participating like good citizens. The democratic process. So, how do you respond to that? Well, if you look at their ads, when when push comes to shove, sometimes their ads don't mention their issue at all. They're just slandering candidates that they don't like. Uh, and, and, you know, they'll say anything to elect a candidate who is going to back school vultures or destroy a candidate who's actually trying to support our public schools, which are essential to our democracy. So if you examine what they're doing on the ground, it's not, you know, in support of those innocent children that they want to help get an education. It's hardly that at all. So, Matt, thanks for joining us. Um, you don't think that the current... Um, plan going through our state legislature that would have um, more funding, more public funding for vouchers across the state has anything to do with this influx of special interest money going to Republicans, do you? Well, I actually do. And, and it's uh, incredible how the school voucher program has developed since it started with just a couple of million dollars under Tommy Thompson. It was designed to help poor people in Milwaukee, and it was sold as helping poor African-American kids in Milwaukee who were at schools that were advertised as not doing very well public schools to go to some private schools. Now this is going statewide. Uh, it wouldn't just be for poor kids. It would be for uh, kids of families, according to some of this new legislation, that are bringing in $73,000 a year. And uh, I saw a study that said a lot of people who are benefiting from vouchers actually were affording uh, the tuition even without vouchers. They were sending their kids to these private schools without vouchers. And so what this is is just a giant subsidy to the private school industry, the school voucher industry, and it's a way to siphon money away from the public schools to make it even harder for our public schools to work properly and give our kids an education. It's a way to destroy public education and then funnel more and more people into private school vouchers. I think you just hit the nail on the head, Matt. This is part of a long war against the public institutions to expand opportunity that we have built up. 
Uh, quite frankly, since the 19th century when we started doing, trying to do universal free public education. And so, quite frankly, this is really a blow against equal opportunity and everyone else ha having a, fa a fair shake at the American dream, quite frankly. And it was a horrible thing in Milwaukee. I mean, Milwaukee was divided for years where vouchers, we didn't spend more money, we didn't need to improve the schools, right? We didn't, I mean, in terms of building, I mean, you go to a Milwaukee public school and compare the physical plant and the athletic fields and everything compared to a suburban school, I mean, it's night and day, right? But that's not the problem. The problem is there was terrible public teachers and we'll have these great fly-by-night voucher operators and we'll siphon off money and things will be great. And guess what? They cherry pick. They don't take the special the special needs kids, uh, so they they violate in many ways a lot of constitutional principles there, and yet they don't perform any better. And you know why? Because the key thing to education is high quality teachers, and these are low road schools that have uh, uncertified teachers that turn over every couple of years, as opposed to highly qualified public teachers like we have in the public system. Well, you're absolutely right about that, Robert. This is assault an assault on democracy and assault on the bedrock principle that. Everyone deserves a free and equal and high-quality education, and that we are responsible for that as a community. And it also is a re-articulation of a piece of propaganda that is so common right now and that we need to, uh, we need to refute, and that is the uh, piece of propaganda that says everything public is bad and everything private is good. This is the mantra of Republicans and conservatives since the days of Ronald Reagan, and they're using it as... Uh, as a lever just to destroy public schools and to reinforce their notion that, uh, well, when the public schools get strangled for money, they're going from uh, what used to be great schools now to not so great schools, so we should spend more money in the, in the private sector. And it's rewarding their friends uh, in the private sector who sometimes run these fly-by-night schools, as you're suggesting. And, uh, you know, it's ruinous of our communities, too, because our public schools are the bedrock of our communities, especially in rural uh, districts in Wisconsin and around the country. And yet, uh, you know, they're going to pay for these fly-by-night electronic uh, schools where there's no these virtual schools where you never even see your teacher or meet your teacher in person. Uh, that's one of the things that Walker is backing. And so this notion that at bottom we as a community are going to come together and pay for free public education for all our kids uh, you know, it's going out the window uh, unless we fight back, and that's what's crucial. And still, I think in Wisconsin, people like their public schools, they like their public school teachers, and this ultimately is going to fail. But with all this money pouring in right now, uh, it's not failing yet. I think that's what's so important about your research, Matt, is the connect to the money. And you mentioned DeVos's group and the increasing amounts of money that they're pumping in. And it's because, as you said, the public is still with, I, I, you know, I think broadly speaking, supporting public institutions, and 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 you need to spend that kind of money in order to basically start to go up against the public will in order to politically get the work done to expand it the way they are. The other thing is, it appears this new bill that they're moving. Uh, starts to move away where they used to tell districts that they would more hold them harmless. It's in, uh, you know, which wasn't the case, uh, but it sounds like the districts are going to be taking on more of the costs of the expansion. Um, and all of this, I think, leads to this thing being less popular. So again, why they would need to dump in this special interest money in order to uh, politically grease the wheels to get this done. So your research is, I think, very important in, uh, in pointing out that connection. Yeah, I mean, there was an article in the, in the Journal Sentinel recently that said uh, the increase of vultures in southeastern Wisconsin 
is going to uh, take a huge toll on the public school districts there. Uh, virtually, uh, you know, one third of the funding that's going to the to the private school vouchers is going to come out of the accounts of the public schools there. So they're just going to be uh, caught between a rock and a hard place. Either they're going to have to do with uh, a lot less money or they're going to have to raise taxes. And no school district wants to be uh, on the hook for raising taxes all the time. But interestingly, you know, the people, when you poll them, they're, they're, they say that they're prepared to pay more in taxes to boost public education. So that's where this anti-tax rhetoric uh, is belied by the fact, too. I mean, people understand that government has a positive role to play, especially here in the arena of public education. We really appreciate you taking the time uh, to join us, uh, but in particular, really want to thank you for the research. Uh, by the way, you're right. It looks like Milwaukee's uh, school district will lose about $10 million, uh, if, if this uh, gets approved. But thank you, Matt, for again, for your organization's outstanding research and making the connection between money and, and polluting our politics. My pleasure. Always nice to be with you. All right. Thank you. So with that we got to wrap up this week's show. As always, we want to thank our producer, Brian Wildridge, who makes this happen every week. And if you get a chance next week, August 4th, you want to come see the Wildridge Brothers CD release party. Get out and show some love to our producer. Uh, it is at Anodyne here in Milwaukee, right near uh, Milwaukee Tech. But get out, what time is it? 7 p.m., I assume? 8 p.m., on August 4th. So uh, an advanced warning to get it on your calendar. But with that, again, Brian, thank you for producing the show. We want to thank our guests uh, who joined us, uh, Joan from our organizing cooperative and Matt Rothschild from the Wisconsin Democracy Campaign. And we'll see you again next week here at the Battleground Wisconsin.